Coming up this evening on NTD Business. The Federal Reserve reveals its latest plans to fight inflation, but will it actually help? China is seeking to increase oil production by investing billions of dollars. It doesn't want to rely so much on other countries. JetBlue trying to win a bidding war with Frontier to buy Spirit. What's in it for JetBlue? That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Paul Graney here live from New York City. Throughout the pandemic, the Fed stimulated financial markets through quantitative easing. That's a fancy term for printing new bank reserves and buying financial assets, pushing the price of those assets up. But as inflation kicked in, the Fed gradually stopped that policy. Now it's planning to go in reverse by reducing the number of bank reserves in circulation. The idea is to help tame inflation. Fed officials, quote, generally agreed last month to trim $60 billion per month from the Fed's U.S. Treasury holdings and $35 billion from its holdings of mortgage-backed securities. This is known as reducing the size of the Fed's balance sheet. It now stands at $9 trillion. This planned reduction of $95 billion, or about 1% of the total, would be done over a period of three months or so, according to the minutes of a Fed meeting in March. The Fed also hinting at raising interest rates even faster. Last time we got a quarter point raise, next time we could see a half point. Again, the idea is to fight inflation. And we're grateful as always to be joined by Daniel DiMartino Booth, former advisor to the Fed Reserve Bank of Dallas, now the CEO of Quill Intelligence. Daniel, great to see you. On the balance sheet reduction, will this actually affect the price we're paying at the store because the Fed increased the size of its balance sheet a lot faster than it's planning to reduce it? Well, we're really going to have to wait and see how much control the Fed actually has over uh, inflation. As we know, the invasion of Ukraine has severely affected uh, food prices and the supply chain of food globally. And it, 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 it it's it's undetermined whether or not the Fed is going to be able to, to, to bring food prices down, to bring gasoline prices down. Um, theoretically, though, they will be able to slow the housing market and the automobile market, things that, things that U.S. households purchase using credit and financing because they're going to be depleting the system of liquidity. They're going to be tightening access to credit in doing so, and that's going to raise borrowing costs. Could tightening even be inflationary if businesses don't have the money to fix the broken supply chains? Well, I, I, I doubt that it will be inflationary in the sense that you have to have both sides of the equation, supply and demand. And we've seen so much demand pulled forward that we're now seeing Americans really tamp down their spending. Their goods consumption has been falling for several months, and it's starting to affect retail sales figures, of course. And this is one of the reasons that we've seen uh, so many so many sell-side and buy-side firms begin to say there's a real probability that the United States is sliding into recession. We are a 68% consumption of, uh, uh, as a percentage of GDP. So without Americans consuming, especially if the stock market continues to be as volatile as it is, there's a good chance that we will indeed fall into recession and, and, and firms won't have pricing power. What happens if the inflation is caused by supply chains and the Fed goes ahead and dents the labor market as, as we're talking about and reduce people's ability to, to ask for higher wages? What happens? Well, you're describing a stagflationary environment. And indeed, 
companies will look to cut their largest source of expenses and about two thirds of any given company's expense is labor. And so when push comes to shove, if their margins continue to get squeezed, if their profits continue to be uh, pummeled by high high wage inflation and high input costs, they will look to begin reducing headcounts. So in that case, wages could, could stagnate or drop, but the prices we're paying for basic essentials could even keep rising. Again, you, you, you describe a stagflationary backdrop, and that's a very difficult uh, dilemma for the Fed to, to approach because the tools really don't exist uh, for the Federal Reserve, at least, to address stagflation. I think this is so true, something that, that has been overlooked. Maybe we're looking to the Fed too much to try and fix these particular problems. They're, they're wide-ranging, right? They are extremely wide ranging and a lot of what got the inflation as heated up as it is uh, goes to Washington DC, goes to fiscal policy to, uh, in the first place. That's why you know, you have to be grateful that there are some cooler heads that are prevailing and, and preventing a lot more of this fiscal largesse, even though as we've seen, uh, the government's going to put off once again, uh, repayment of student loans to try and get what little stimulus they can into the economy, despite the unemployment rate being at a 50 year low. Does the Fed have the tools to separate the, the inflation caused by demand, which it can have some effect on, and the inflation caused by supply chain problems? Uh, the, the Fed's tools are simply not that precise in nature. And that is, as you fairly point out, an impediment to Fed policy. I mean, there's a good chance that you could see financial assets continue to sell off. And again, that's going to trickle through to the 20% of consumers who are, are responsible for more than 40% of U.S. consumption. So it's kind of a wealth effect in reverse. And that would, that, that would actually impair the Fed's ability to try and tamp down prices and, and to try and, and re reduce credit to the system. You mentioned cool heads, Danielle. We're appreciating your cool head here this evening. Appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Danielle DiMartino, Booth Cool Intelligence. Thank you. Mortgage rates are still going up. The Mortgage Bankers Association reports that the average rate for a 30-year loan rose to 4.9%. That's up a tenth of a percentage point from just last week. It's now at the highest rate in over three years, and it's quickly dampening home buying demand, it seems. The MBA says the number of loan applications fell over 6% from the week before, and refinancing applications almost dropped by 10%. Now, Deutsche Bank is the first big bank to forecast a recession in the U.S. Economists at the bank say the Fed will respond to surging inflation with aggressive policy tightening that could spark a recession as soon as next year. Red-hot inflation has raised the prospect the Fed will have to step on the brakes harder to tame runaway prices. Now, Deutsche Bank says price stability will likely only be achieved by a restrictive monetary policy that, quote, meaningfully dents demand. In other words, the Fed needs to really slow down the economy, not just tap the brakes. Fed Governor Lael Brainard normally favors low interest rates and loose monetary policy, but yesterday... She said the central bank is poised to tighten policy aggressively with a speedy reduction in the balance sheet and a steady pace of rate hikes. Consumer prices in the United States have risen at their fastest pace in 40 years. Here's telling you. And a new poll says that four out of five Americans are worried about, are worried about a recession this year. The poll also shows that three in five don't think the president is handling inflation right and people say high prices are forcing them to cut spending. Half of them eating out less, two out of five driving less, 
and one in three switching to generic products instead of branded ones. I talked to Wall Street veteran Charles Mizrahi about the economy today. I asked him if we are indeed facing a recession. Could be. Well, every time the Fed raises rates, we go into a tightening cycle. We've had 16 of them in the past, I don't know, decades. Out of those 16, 13 have ended up in recession. Only three weren't. It's a very hard game that the Fed is playing now, which is trying to corral inflation by raising rates and not putting the economy into recession. For a long time, we were told by the Fed that inflation was caused by supply chain problems. There was really no mention of monetary policy. What changed? They're thinking. They were wrong from the, from the get-go. First, they said it was transitory. They said there wasn't inflation. But last summertime, they just denied that there was inflation. And, and all the Fed had to do was just walk out and go to the supermarket or fill up their car or try to hire workers. But they live in an ivory tower, and they just didn't see it or didn't want to see it. And what changed was the numbers are just too drastic. We have uh, inflation now running, CPI close to 8%. Even the Fed's benchmark is about 4% plus. We have a tight, tight, tight labor market, which increases uh, inflation, because now everyone's going for the same worker and just paying up more for it. And we have an energy crisis. So you put those all together, you have uh, the classic definition of inflation, which is too many dollars chasing too few goods. I think finally, Charles, how do you protect your money in these environment? You don't. You don't protect your money. What you do is you invest your money. Uh, if you keep your money, think about it this way. Your dollar is a melting ice cube. You still have it, but every year it's buying less. Over the past 20 some odd years, it decreased by its purchase power by 30%. And that's in a low inflationary environment. As Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's partner said, at the end, all fiat currency is worth zero. Right? It just keeps shrinking. So what is the best thing to do? A, I'll give you what, what, you know, just tell you what to avoid. This way, um, just let me know where I'm going to die, and this is where I'll avoid it. Avoid keeping your money in a bank or under your mattress. Because right off the bat, if inflation's 8%, your dollar's only buying 92 cents at the end of the year. So you got to do something. Best wealth creator ever is the stock market. You could own pieces of a business, which a stock is, and hold them over the long term. And as the business grows, your share price increases, and you, you're, you're worth more. The whole trick here is that our economy has suffered depressions, recessions, inflations, uh, wars, presidents resigning, a whole bunch of things. And we're still the number one economy in the world. Our GDP pales everyone else's. And there's a reason for that, because we have a system of government in place. We have uh, an environment of, of uh, rule of law, a taxation which is, which, is, which is fair and equitable. And that gives the impetus, the stimulus, in order for businesses to continue to thrive. So if you find businesses that are able to raise prices, example, Amazon. Amazon just raised Prime. They didn't lose many people, right? Because it's a service you want of it. Netflix went up by a dollar to their top tier. They should bring in $1.3 billion just by raising the ground. Those are businesses that, regardless, you're going to pay more for. So if you become partners with those businesses by buying shares in their company and then hold them for the long term, hold them for the long term, you will not only beat inflation, you not only beat the GDP growth, you will make excellent, excellent returns. And that's the way wealth is created. It doesn't get more complicated than that. Charles Mizrahi, Alpha Investor, appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. 
Our full interview with Charles Mizrahi will soon be available on NTD.com. And the stock market fell today after the Fed minutes. The Dow fell 145 points, four-tenths of a percent. The S&P 500 lost 44 points, one percent. The Nasdaq lost 315 points, two and two-tenths of a percent today. And today, the U.S. government imposed a new round of sanctions on Moscow. It's after allegations Russia committed war crimes in Ukraine, claims Moscow denied. The White House says the new sanctions will allow Putin fewer resources to fund his war. It includes cutting off Russia's largest banks from doing any business with the U.S., blocking two-thirds of Russia's entire banking sector. In response to the banks that got hit, say the sanctions won't have a big impact, apparently. One said it's already adapted to the situation. Now the U.S. is also banning new investment in Russia, among other measures. Meanwhile, Russia's foreign minister says the previous sanctions were causing pain to the global economy, hurting countries that buy food from food and fertilizer from Russia. And the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen today blamed the sanctions against Russia for pushing up energy prices. Gas prices have gone up about 20% since Russia invaded Ukraine, but they started rising long before the war. Some lawmakers are also blaming big oil for high gas prices. So is there price gouging going on? A Democrat-led committee held a hearing today to address this. Oil executives from firms like Chevron, ExxonMobil, and Shell testified at a House hearing Wednesday. The hearing is called Gouged at the Gas Station, Big Oil and America's Pain at the Pump. While the price of oil has dropped significantly from the peak, the price that Americans are paying at the pump has not. And this is what I want to know from our witnesses today. Why? The Democrats generally blame the oil companies for high gas prices. And we're here to get answers from the big oil companies about why they're ripping off the American people at a time of record profits. And Republicans blamed President Biden's policies. As a direct result of President Biden's anti-American energy agenda, prices have rapidly risen for more than a year. The hearing was held by the Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations, which is chaired by Colorado Democrat Diana DeGette. Excluding her, the subcommittee has 10 Democrats and 8 Republicans. At the hearing, the oil executives defended themselves. Because oil is a global commodity, Shell does not set or control the price of crude oil. Similarly, Shell does not set or control the price that consumers pay. Indeed, it would be illegal for Shell to do so. BPX Energy CEO David Lawler explained that the price changes aren't instantaneous. There's also quite a, quite a reflection of supply risk. So we talked about just a moment ago that crude oil supplies are down. That actually applies to all refined products, whether that's jet, diesel, gasoline, and that supply risk. So, is so you're saying you're saying markets. that the price at the pump may be higher because of jet fuel prices? Is that one of the factors you're saying? Um, what I'm saying is that all refined products at this point carry a supply risk, okay. which is part of the complex pricing equation that impacts prices at the pump. Okay. Can any of the rest of you in the 41 seconds I have left tell me if you have an idea why price per barrel of oil is falling, but price at the pump is still saying just as high? Chevron CEO Mike Worth also explained how gas pricing works. The cost that a retailer has paid for fuel a week or two weeks prior and the cost that they may need to pay to resupply all factor into the competition, the pricing that you see at the pump. And so these things do, for 
correlate over the long term, but in the short term, they don't always move in tandem. Uh, except for except for here, they did correlate. So, Alan Fredrickson, NTD News. And China is trying to become more energy independent. Big state-owned oil companies are pouring billions into oil exploration. Why? Here's NTD's Don Ma. Beijing wants to be much more energy independent. China's three major state-owned oil companies are putting billions of dollars into trying to increase oil production. China is currently an importer of oil. About two-thirds of its oil consumption are imports. Brent Bennett, the policy director at Life Power, says China has a long way to go before it can replace imported oil with domestic oil. They would need to triple um, their product, their domestic production to reach the state where the U.S. is now, where our net imports in the U.S. are about zero. So they have a long way to go to get to that point. Though China does have the reserves to increase domestic oil output and theoretically replace oil imports. They have you know, 26 billion barrels of uh, proven reserves, according to the Energy Information Administration. So that is, uh, that's a significant number. The U.S. has about 50 billion barrels. That's several decades worth of consumption at their current rates. They definitely have the oil and gas in the ground to, to consume. State companies, PetroChina, Sinopec, and CNOOC, are to spend around $84 billion on oil development and exploration. That's an increase of 6% from last year at the highest level since 2014. So then how long does the process take starting from drilling wells in the ground? It takes a lot of infrastructure to, uh, to boost domestic output, right? So you need not just to be able to go out and drill wells, which takes uh, 6 to 12 months but to drill and complete a well, but you need the pipelines, uh, you need the processing and storage infrastructure, and that infrastructure takes several years to build, and two to three years would be very optimistic. Last year, Beijing barely made any mention of energy independence. So why now is China starting to be worried about energy security? Bennett suggests it has to do in part with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The sanctions that the West is imposing on Russia, uh, I think the Chinese are seeing that they want to ensure more of their own geopolitical security. They, may, they need to uh, secure more supplies of of oil and gas in particular. China's National Energy Agency last week told state energy companies to make, quote, safeguarding, secure, and stable energy supply as the top mission. Don Ma, NTD News. And budget airline JetBlue made a bid for Spirit today. Kind of caught Wall Street by surprise. It's trying to outbid another low-cost carrier, Frontier, which has been talking with Spirit, had been offered $2.7 billion to buy the company. But now JetBlue is flying in with an offer of $3.6 billion. Both Frontier and JetBlue want to buy Spirit to help them better compete with legacy airlines like United, American, and Delta. But any deal would need to be approved by antitrust regulators who could argue the merger would reduce competition and raise prices. And General Motors and Honda are joining forces to lower prices. They're trying to build a $30,000 electric car. It's no small task because doing it in a profitable way is tricky, due no small part to the high cost of battery components. But GM and Honda think they've found the solution, teamwork. 
Then on to Collaboration Tuesday, they will also explore ways to develop new, cheaper batteries and to improve vehicle performance and sustainability. Companies are already looking at new options like silicon, lithium, metal and solid-state batteries. GM said it will offer a compact SUV for under 30 grand as early as 2027. Honda wouldn't reveal pricing for vehicles. That may come from the partnership. We'll let you know. It's still to come this evening. The Twitter announcing it's been working on an edit feature for the past year after Elon Musk tweeted about it. And deliveries of the next Air Force One planes for the president are behind schedule, delayed by a couple years. That and more coming up on NTD Business. back. After Elon Musk tweeted about having an edit feature in Twitter, you know, a way to edit your tweets after you post them, Twitter says it's already been working on this for the past year. So why does it take so long to add an edit feature? Twitter didn't say. It did say it's going to start testing the feature in a few months, but only on its paid subscription service called Twitter Blue. Twitter Blue costs $3 a month, and you get access to things like an undo tweet feature, ad-free articles, and themes. And Uber is moving ahead with its plan to become a travel super app. It's adding planes, trains, buses, and car rentals to its app in the UK later this year. The announcement comes after a recent victory for the company. In late March, Uber secured a 30-month lease to operate in London, only after a lengthy battle with regulators, though. The head of Uber in the UK says the company hopes to become a one-stop shop for users' travel needs. Uber hasn't announced the companies it plans to partner with yet. But if the rollout goes well in the UK, Uber may expand to others to expand the new services to other countries. And the International Space Station will be busier than usual this week when its crew welcomes four new colleagues. They are from Houston-based startups Axiom Space the first all-private astronaut team ever flown to the outpost. Lisa Bernhardt reports. The International Space Station is set to become busier than usual this week when its crew welcomes the first all-private astronaut team ever flown to the orbiting outpost. The four-man civilian crew from Houston-based startup Axiom Space plans to lift off Friday, weather permitting, from NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida, riding atop a Falcon 9 rocket furnished by Elon Musk's SpaceX. This is a very historic moment. We're like early days of Internet, and we haven't even imagined all the possibilities, all the capabilities that we're going to be providing uh, in space. The so-called AX-1 civilian crew will be led by retired NASA astronaut Michael Lopez Alegria, now Axiom's vice president of business development. He is set to be joined by real estate and technology entrepreneur and aerobatics aviator Larry Connor, who will serve as the mission pilot. 
Rounding out the team are investor philanthropist and former Israeli fighter pilot Eitan Stiba and Canadian businessman and philanthropist Mark Pathy. While the space station has hosted visits by civilian visitors from time to time, the AX-1 mission will mark the first all-commercial team of astronauts to use ISS for its intended purpose as an orbiting laboratory. The team will be carrying equipment and supplies for 26 science and technology experiments. These include research on brain health, cardiac stem cells, cancer and aging, as studies have shown that spending time in space can cause changes in the body that resemble aging. We now know that when you go to space, there's a little bit of acceleration in aging, right? And so we're doing some clinical research and saying, wow, if, if there's a little acceleration, can, you know, and identifying what causes that acceleration, and by understanding that, can we slow aging? The AX-1 crew says that their biomedical research is what sets them apart from the wealthy passengers hurling to space aboard Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin and Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic rockets, with the AX-1 leader recently telling reporters, quote, we are not space tourists. And the next generation of presidential planes is being delayed by two years. Boeing is making the two aircraft, which were due at the end of 2024, but the Air Force says that deadline has been pushed back because of the COVID-19 pandemic, manpower limitations, design timelines, and test execution rates. Boeing isn't commenting on the delay. The Air Force says the current fleet is airworthy, but might need extra maintenance. The two new planes cost nearly $4 billion, but the government could end up paying more than $5 billion when all the testing is done. Now look at some of the stories making headlines in the world of entertainment. Here's the Hollywood Minute. I'm not at all surprised. Big screen legend Harrison Ford's had a long career, but he's never had a lead role in a TV series. Until now. The veteran actor is set to play a psychiatrist in the Apple TV Plus show Shrinking. The comedy co-stars Jason Segel and is produced by the team that created the Emmy award-winning hit Ted Lasso. Ready. As ever. Captain Picard will have his old crew with him for his final trip into the final frontier. Paramount Plus just revealed that the Star Trek The Next Generation cast will be reuniting for the third and final season of Picard. The last time they all appeared together was 20 years ago in the film Star Trek Nemesis. Here's 30 minutes of easy listening on 103.5 Don FM. Jim Carrey makes a creepy cameo in The weekend's new music video, Out of Time. The two Canadian stars became friends a few years ago after discovering they both lived in the same L.A. neighborhood. Creepy is right. That's the latest in the Entity Business team and myself, Paul Graney. You can still catch Entity Evening News with Stephanie Cox. That's at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. You can follow me on Twitter, too, if you're there. For Entity Business, it's all for today. Thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.